0: Well, we're looking at that passage from 1 Corinthians 3 this morning. I believe you've been working through 1 Corinthians, and this is the next uh, in those little section. Uh, my privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, as, a, as I've explained, it's hard to get around to every parish uh, each year. 64 into 52 does not go unless you double up. And then when you take other responsibilities like conferences and holidays and other bits and pieces, It still works out, but once every two years, I can sort of be around. But it's great to be with you, and to see the ministry is occurring here with Graham and Michelle. And I'm thankful for your involvement of that in your partnership in the gospel with Graham and Michelle, because it's not a solo activity when you lead a church. And we'll come to the subject of leadership this morning when we look at one Corinthians three, because leadership is front and centre in uh, as it plays out here so if you don't mind I'll bow if you bow your heads I'll lead us in prayer father we do thank you that you do build your church and sustain it may we have insight into what your word says says this day that being equipped to serve the Lord we may do so with confidence with certainty about what you are doing amongst us and with us Help us, we pray now, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul writes chapter 3 about how we may properly build a church. And of course, you know instantly, it's not about how you do the bricks and mortar. Uh, We don't know about, we don't need engineers' plans from God. It's about how we build the church of people, which are primarily the way we should think of church. So we use them in many other different ways. If you're going to build the church... So that people are built This will require leadership That should not be a surprise In other words things don't just happen spontaneously Or by accident For the way that God's always designed it Leadership is required from the early start of the church It was a spontaneous Move in the spirit wasn't it But leadership was embedded in the Jerusalem church As it spread out Things might have gone away but quickly Leadership was required And normalisation of what was going on Was needed However, when it comes to leadership, there can always be problems that occur. And if you read the section from 1 Corinthians 3, you got a real sense that at the church at Corinth, there were factions uh, breaking out. We're not sure how big the church was, but when churches start to say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, that is, here's a guy I look to, you realise you have a problem, don't you? You realise if there's competing claims about who people are following and who's the leader here, whatever way you play that out is not a good outcome, and that's what's occurring in this church, and what Paul here is concerned about. That they're actually in a very worldly manner as a consequence. They're not—they're aping the very characteristics of Corinth, not aping the characteristics of the people of God that He expects. So, how do we build churches properly? Well, this is how we start by looking, making sure that we view our leaders in an appropriate way. So, I want to start down in verse five, chapter three, chapter uh, verse five, chapter three, about how we view leaders. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. First, notice very carefully there the description of the leaders of the church. They are primarily thought of as servants of the Lord, only servants for whom you came to believe as the Lord is a sign. Not servants of the church. Uh, not servants. You don't appoint Graham Thomas to be the servant of Robertson Anglican Church. He is assigned to the responsibility of the Robinson Anglican Church to be a servant of the Lord in your midst. There's a, there's a real substantial difference. To be a servant of the church means you're, the church is my master, He's control. And then when you have a church where your master, you have all people. No, that's the wrong way of thinking. The leaders are assigned to be the servant of the Lord primarily. And as such, if they're of the Lord, there is accountability that flows from that. In their task, and the accountability obviously ultimately goes to the Lord. So look at verses 6 and 7. I planted the seed, that's Paul, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who makes things grow. <clears throat> now, this is an agricultural metaphor. And I think of all the metaphors you can have at Robertson, this is yours, isn't it? This is your one. You appreciate agriculture here more than most people. You see it, you hear it, and occasionally I guess you can smell it. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know. Some places you can. So what he's saying here in the agriculture world is, to focus exclusively on one part of the whole agricultural business is a folly. So there is a person who sows, a sower, Right? And you look at them, and they're the be or oh, the sower, so important. But he said, well, the irrigator. You need someone to irrigate them. They, oh, the irrigator is the only thing, but you can't irrigate without the seed sowed. Well, you can't have the seed sown without the water to make it grow. And so to send into needless disputes about, oh, who's more important here? Well, it's nonsense, isn't it? You need all of those things. And to say, uh, he's highlighting here, but the difference between Paul and Apollos, you know, At different times, different responsibilities, but to focus on one to the exclusion of others is to miss the point. And more significantly in this is that it's only God who makes it grow. In other words, leaders will come, leaders will provide leadership, but never look, oh, look what the leader has done. It is, look what God has wrought amongst us by the leadership. Again, you sort of think, aren't they saying this? No, they're very different views, aren't they? One gives credence and credibility and importance to God. The other one gives credence and credibility and importance to man. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you boast only in the Lord, not in people. So you look to the Lord who and what he has wrought amongst this group of people by this leadership. And each leader will have a different task in his day notice that at the end of verse 5 it's a sort of one of those things we can quickly skip over but it's significant as the Lord is assigned to each his task at each time a leader is appointed there's a task that they have in their day and when a new leader is appointed there's a task that's appointed for their day ultimately they have one purpose which is to grow so can I uh, use change it a little bit? Think about the terms of Robertson Anglican. How long has Robertson Anglican been here as a church? Anyone know? Where's my? Huh? 1876. 1876. So a long time. Okay, 141 years. Just like that. See, I'm a mess. Whiz. 141 years. How many different pastors or rectors have been here in 141 years? Do you reckon? 20? 30? I don't know, whatever number. The point of this story, if you think about it, and each time, whoever is appointed the leader of the church is in their day responsible for the task that they see before them under the Lord. Okay? Not as if the person before is unimportant. They have been responsible under the Lord for what they did in their day. And the person before that responsible and the person who follows uh, to have a task, which in their day is what they're meant to be accomplishing under the Lord. But it's all one long purpose, which is to grow the church. There is one consistent direction. This church, If I, I'm, I'm changing the analogy from Corinth to Robertson, is to grow the church, not just to exist. Not just to survive, not just to be here and look how good we are, but to grow. And we'll come to understanding what that grow looks like. In verse 8, we see this played out. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his own labour. One purpose, no matter what time, what stage. Individual faithfulness by each leader is required. And that's why he finishes in verse 9... For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field and God's building. <clears throat> so, this first agricultural analogy is very understandable. The field is the church, I'll use again of our circumstances, Church Robertson. The workers are the leaders appointed, and I say the leaders that are grow up naturally. So, there's two ways we can think of leadership here the appointed leaders or the naturally grown leaders from within. But Whatever leadership you have, they are to be faithful in their responsibility and through their faithfulness that God will grow, and God will grow two ways, in maturity and size. So the reach of the gospel will go out further and the depth of understanding of the gospel from those who are part of the church will be larger, more significant and more controlling of their lives So the implications of this are quite significant. Did you know? And this is an insight that you might be surprised at. And I'll pick on. Can I pick on Graham Thomas this morning? That'd be good. He's up for it, do you reckon? Okay. I think he's up to it. Did you realise not all leaders like Graham Thomas? Surprising, isn't it? Not everyone is like Graham Thomas. But God graciously provides the leaders that you need at one time or other to contribute for the task before them then. So Graham will bring particular gifts and skills for this moment. He'll be responsible, to the Lord, for how he out, uh, undertakes them. His role is to see the church grow in size and reach, in depth of understanding. But no leader is going to be the same. And so that means that, in churches, I've seen this happen over time, some leader at some stage is so venerated, so hurt up on a pedestal, is that they're the be-all and end-all of what a church should have as a lead because if we could only have someone like that again, but that's not what Paul is saying here. We can trust God to provide the leaders you need at each stage, at each moment, under his gracious, sovereign care. So that's the analogy, first of all, of agriculture. Now we move to the analogy of architecture and, how, and where we find that God is not indifferent about how the churches go about building in verses 10 through 17. Um, we know that churches are both, in one level, the field or the building, and we know that the building, in particular here, if we go down to verses 16 and 17, is the building is a temple. So the building that God has is the temple, and that's picking a picture of the church we have here, his temple. He says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and the God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. But God's temple is sacred. You are that temple. So he's really raising the stakes here, isn't it? So whatever happening here, it's very precious. If it's his temple and his spirit inhabits it, it's really precious to God. He's not going to go back and say, you know what, whatever happens here, shrug the shoulders. No, he's very concerned. When it comes to building, we know that buildings don't happen fast in the in ancient world. We're used to the government uh, announcing uh, built major projects And they're shovel-ready, as they like to say, and they get completed within a couple of years. Did you know back in the ancient world, a significant temple might take over a century to build? Over a long, long period of time would take for that to be built. And so over the decades, you might start with one builder, and he might either retire or die, and someone else takes over. And he's responsible, and then he might retire. And by the time you're finished, you've got the last builder in the process who actually responsible for completing the process, uh, for the whole thing. The power of the analogy here is that God owns the building. God owns the building. And he is not some disinterested observer about all that occurs. So, in the life of Robertson Anglican Church, I want to be honest, God's not sitting up and saying, oh, well, who cares? These people can do what they like, really makes no difference to me. This is his temple. He's invested in this and wants to make sure this church operates well by his standards. And he will judge the quality of the work that occurs. So go back to verse 10. <clears throat> and then Paul speaking about himself. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. So there's a picture. I started, now someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how we build. So again, as each leader, be careful how you build at this moment in time. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the first important point here for the church is only one foundation. Lots of builders but only one foundation, which is Jesus Christ. It's the apostolic gospel, is the foundation by which the church... You know, one apostolic church had that expression. Only the apostolic church is the true church, the foundation of the church. And this is a very significant thing because we get confused by the signs out the front of our streets, where there are signs saying church. And we say, oh, there's a church. It may or may not be... Because unless it's built on the foundation of the apostles, it may not be God's church. It might just be a place that has a sign at the front saying church. The only church that reliably is, is the apostolic church. The one built upon the apostolic word, which is the Bible as it's explained. It's the foundation of the church where we find Jesus Christ at the center. And that's the foundation that Paul provided the church Corinth. And we pray unto God, continues to provide it here at Robertson. But even when you have the foundations right, initially, things can get dodgy later on. Dodgy building, verses 12 to 13. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will reveal with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If, he, if what he has built survives, he'll receive reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. These uh, verses have uh, caused some heartache at different times. i tell you what's being said here materials here, it's not as if they're a the descending value. you know if you're going to do something for the Lord only do the best you ever had expression. It's not that quite being in it. but as he's saying the workmanship of each leader will be evaluated and the fire expose the quality of what's been done in its time. So it's a sobering thought for leaders when they take it to heart. It means that what is done by each leader in his time, the Lord will evaluate. And it's possible, what is being said here, for a leader to be leading a church for a period of time and in the end have nothing to show for it. So if I could speak personally, I've been involved in church life, uh, leadership-wise, for quite a while. I know what it is to make a church work well socially to get people engaged to feel like they're contributing and have a lot of activity happening and have good processes in place and good administration so everything's sort of humming along and everyone feels like it's all working but I'm contributing nothing to growing God's church I've just learned how to socialise a group of people so they're content. Do you see the difference? The evaluation here is: This a group of people have really come to know the Lord more. Have we converted people? Has this contributed to God's building in such a way that not people aren't just busy, but we're busy in the Lord? Is a place where people will actually see it, Would say at the end of each year, I now know the Lord better than I did the year before. I know that I can trust Him. I can rely upon Him. Do we just have attenders or have people who are truly converted? Is Jesus Christ crucified still the main thing here? They're the questions that are really substantial, not just how well the church is run. I'm not trying to dismiss those things. Use your Elevanto software well, brother. (laughs) (laughs) What have I touched upon there? (laughs) But at on one level, it's irrelevant. Do you see? It serves a more substantial purpose. Is this group of people really confident in the Lord, loving Him, and wanting to serve Him with all their hearts, souls, and mind? And God cares about what is happening in His church. He's not indifferent. It will be evaluated, and the work of the leader will be evaluated as a consequence. And the leadership there is both the internal leadership and the appointed leadership. Sobering thoughts, aren't they? Then we move to verses 18 through 23. And what we find what truly matters. First of all, we start with another warning. Uh, not to adopt the patterns that so easily mimic the world. Verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves that anyone thinks that he is wise by the standards of this age. He should become a fool so that he will become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. In these words, he's picking up what he said before about the foolishness of the cross, of Christ in particular. From the world's point of view, the cross was an absolute point of weakness and foolishness. But for God, the cross of Jesus Christ was a place of power and wisdom. And the foolishness is a way in which we're using the world's way to accomplish what we think is God's purposes in his church. The foolish way always has an attraction. But the way of wisdom always seems so poor, so unimpressive. Unimpressive. The judgment of the world is the cross of Jesus Christ is weak, shameful, pitiful, to be seen as irrelevant. But from God's perspective, the cross was his greatest display of wisdom. So if I can turn the context of church, if we resort to glitz and glamour and cleverness, to build the church, but not rely on the cross of Jesus Christ, we're again failing the test that He's saying here. Again, don't pit them. Up, you know, I want our churches to operate well. I want you know, good music, good structures, good administration. But if you're going to, re- there's a point of difference. I can start to rely on them. You know what it is? I just sort of feeling like they're going to make the difference. But I'm going. I'm going to use them to make sure. Where I need to make sure everything rests on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That is the point being made here. But then Paul concludes what I think is the high point of this whole section in verse 21a. <clears throat> so then, no more boasting about men. No more boasting about men. Leaders will come and go. Leaders are important. We are to honour them. But in the end, we're not to boast in them. We boast only in the Lord. We look back at chapter 1, verse 31. But with that, he then hits home what I think is a high point of this little chapter. 21, second part of verse 21. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future... All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. He is saying, know this, you are secure in Jesus Christ. Remember I said before that I've come to know that it's not just that I've taken hold of Christ, but Christ has taken hold of me, and he's got a bond that's not going to be broken. That's the security in Christ. Christ has so taken hold of you that he will not let you go. And not only is security in Christ, we have the knowledge here that you belong to God. Secure in Christ, belonging to God, the sovereign Lord of all things, you belong to him. And these two things are secure in Christ and belonging to God. If you understand that and have that deeply embedded in your heart and mind and soul, it changes everything. And what does it change here? It changes the way you look at the world. The world is no longer a place that has its charms and allures and things. The world is not there for me to make myself somebody, you know? Oh, without the world, I can't have identity. Without the world, I can't have meaning. I find my identity and meaning in Jesus and God. And we know then the world is mine to enjoy. It doesn't mean I dismiss the world you can't live in Robertson and not enjoy the world, really, except in winter time. <laughs> but you know, enjoy the world, but don't embed yourself as if the world is your master. God is who you belong to. The world doesn't. The world is owned by you, and the world is not then to take control of you. And then he speaks about not just the world but life. All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life. In other words, saying, don't cling to life as if li- this is the only life you're ever going to have. Oh, if I don't have these things, it's all going to be worth nothing. I've got to have all the best things in the world. Oh, unless I have my overseas trips, unless I have my best things in ret- oh, my life won't be worth living. What a load of nonsense. Enjoy those things, i not saying don't have them, but life is a venue to serve the Lord. That's why you have life. Not as if I can grab hold of all these wonderful things and if I don't have them, what a misery in my life. No, the life is a place where you serve the Lord with gladness of heart. Then he says, look further. It's not only all things are yours, whether the world or life or death. Do not fear death. I go to, um, I I, I confess, I go to a gym to work out. You don't get a physique like mine easily. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I go to the gym to work out. Um, And you know what I smell often when I go to the gym? I smell fear. You know what sort of fear it is? Fear of death. As Christians, we know to fear death. Because death has lost its sting, hasn't it? Doesn't mean there's not a sadness and a grief. But death is not the loss of everything, is it? Death is the gain of everything, eternal life. Then he says, All things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present. So the present is not something that simply overcomes us. Oh, it's too much. I can't cope with it. There's too many things coming my way. I just I... you belong to God. You're secure in Christ. No unexpected event, no change of circumstances will so disrupt us that we fall apart. I know we will, but ultimately keep on going back to God and Christ and knowing my security lies there and I'll be okay. I'll be okay. We're secure. Now lastly, it says... Uh, all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future. The future can paralyse us, can't it? What will next year bring? What will two years bring? What? And there's so many uncertainties in the world. If I am secure in Christ and belong to God, I can move to the future confident. And anticipate what will be in front of me with great certainty, because God will go before me and with me, and Christ I'm secure. It won't throw me either either. And Bonus say, if you get this right, you will mark yourself out as so different. Because there's so much anxiety about our future, isn't there? So much trouble about the present, so much concern about the death that's everywhere in the world. If Christians truly understood all this. We mark ourselves out as someone who are truly living differently because we're living for the Lord. So, this chapter is about how we build a church that lasts. How do we build a church that lasts? So, two things to note in conclusion, summarising all this. If you're going to build a church that lasts, keep building upon the foundation that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ crucified. That's the only foundation we must keep making sure we are building upon. We don't then move to people and their preferences. Because if we start to survey, what sort of things do you like here, brothers and sisters? That might be worth doing, but I make sure that the ultimate is not trying to make sure people are pleased and preferences are met. I want to make sure that Jesus Christ and crucified is the whole thing that holds everything together. And more than that, it is it's and proper that churches have their plans and goals, their strategies, their mission statements and all those other things. What must you do with all those things that come our way? Are they building upon the one foundation we must stay firm to? Jesus Christ being crucified. So keep building always on the foundation that's already been laid, Jesus Christ. And then secondly, as you keep building, know that nothing is against you. Nothing's against you. Sink in. If you belong to God, if you're secure in Christ, there is nothing in this world against you. We just saw that. There's nothing against you. So don't be defeated. Ah, oh, the media's against us. Money is against us. Resources against us. The age of our church is against us. Fatigue is against us, time's against us, our culture's against us. And I hear this and you build them all up and you feel what? We can't do anything. It's all piled up. We're sort of paralysed. Everything around us is conspiring. But that's exactly what's not being said here. We don't run to fear and hopelessness. We run to the Lord who we are committed to. And we want to say nothing is against us. And we are so secure in Christ, so sure about belonging to God, we can continue to build upon this church with the leadership God's provided in this day. So on the foundation that we know is certainly there and to do all things to the glory of God without fear, without compromise, and with certainty. Pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Sustain us this day as those who are committed to you and committed to continually building this church to your glory and your glory alone. Amen.